0: Hello and welcome to ILTV's Zion News on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up in today's newscast, Israel removes heavy restrictions around the Gaza Strip, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Attorney General Mendelblit seem to have entered into a standoff, and contestants from around the world walk the orange carpet at Eurovision 2019. a devastating escalation of violence where Hamas fired nearly 700 rockets at civilians in Israel and the subsequent shaky pause in hostilities between Israel and Hamas this last weekend along the border was relatively quiet. Far fewer Palestinian riders appeared on the border fence for their weekly Hamas-led clashes and no major violent outbreaks were reported. Meanwhile Israel, for its part, removed restrictions on the Gaza fishing zone and reopened border crossings for commercial and other goods further qatari envoy mohammed el Emadi was allowed entry into the strip monday morning to deliver yet another money transfer of thirty million dollars to impoverished Gazan citizens this out of a total of four hundred and eighty million dollars that qatar has promised to the palestinians As always, however, the seemingly quiet weekend wasn't for lack of trying, as multiple potential terror attacks were prevented by Israeli security services. For one, on Sunday, the IDF arrested a man from Gaza after he crossed the Gaza border fence illegally armed with a knife. There were no injuries or incidents, however, and the suspect has been detained for investigation. Then, on Monday morning, two former security prisoners and residents of East Jerusalem were charged for allegedly planning a shooting terror attack in Tel Aviv. According to the indictments, 23-year-old Adam Muslemani and 27-year-old Mahmoud Abed Al-Latif, who became friends while in prison, were planning a mass shooting on the beaches of Tel Aviv on behalf of Hamas. And a third suspect from East Jerusalem was also indicted for organizing meetings with Hamas and the channeling of terror funds. All three will remain in custody until sentencing. Moving on, two Saudi oil tankers were mysteriously sabotaged on Sunday. And this is yet another incident pointing to an escalation of tensions in the region. As one tanker was on its way to pick up oil from the U.S. and was significantly damaged, according to Energy Minister Khalid al-Falih. Additionally, while the United Arab Emirates has remained mum on what exactly happened to the tankers, the U.S. is pointing fingers at Iran. In fact, the U.S. warned that Iran, or its proxies, were interested in attacking vessels in the region. And so luckily, while the oil tankers were heavily damaged, there wasn't a spill and no injuries occurred. Still, though, the development is a worrying one, with the Gulf Cooperation Council even dubbing the sabotage a serious escalation in the region. Meanwhile, the UAE said it is launching an investigation alongside other countries to understand what exactly was behind the foul play. Though the attack also coincided with the U.S. deploying an aircraft carrier and B-52 bombers to the area in order to curb Iranian hegemony. Also, this follows the U.S. unilaterally withdrawing from the JCPOA nuclear deal, upping sanctions against Iran and declaring its elite military wing, the IRGC, a terrorist group. Further, these sanctions are all part of a Trump administration effort to pressure Iran into returning to negotiations. That said, though, Iran doesn't seem terribly concerned about the U.S. allegations, nor its increased military presence in the region. And actually, Iranian parliament vice speaker Ali Mutahari said that the U.S. wouldn't dare attack Iran anyway, because the U.S. is not prepared, nor do they want to risk Israel getting caught in the crosshairs. At least Israel, for its part, however, is taking the tension in the region very seriously, and said an Iranian attack on Israeli soil is not out of the question. Back in Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's legal team really doesn't want to go to court anytime soon. Or so it seems, as his team and the Attorney General's office have now engaged in a standoff over collecting Netanyahu's files from the government office. And what's the holdup? Well, it appears Netanyahu is looking for his wealthy friends to pay his legal fees. But that is something the Permits Committee is not allowing to happen for a number of reasons. First, the committee is requesting a detailed account of Netanyahu's assets before it grants his request, and his legal team is refusing to divulge this information. Second, the committee already denied Netanyahu's request to pay his legal fees through donations, as the allegations against him are themselves related to his receiving lavish gifts from wealthy friends outside of Israel. So now, the committee is insistent that Netanyahu pay his own legal battles. But the PM's legal team is now attempting to reach some sort of compromise before the matter goes to the high court. Meanwhile, Netanyahu is also, of course, facing two other corruption charges. One for attempting to curry positive coverage from Israeli daily paper Yedioth Honot, and another where he's accused of offering incentives to the Israeli telecom provider Bezek in exchange for positive stories in an online news website, Walla. But since Netanyahu's attorneys have not picked up his case files, since they are not currently being paid, they have requested an extension on his pre-indictment hearing. Attorney General Avichai Mendelblit is having none of it, though. Instead, the AG's office sent a courier to Netanyahu's office to drop off the documents personally. But still, the documents were refused at the door. Time will tell if this ploy will actually result in delaying the hearing. Now, as Netanyahu continues to negotiate the structure of his coalition, the right-wing parties have already begun putting together far-reaching reforms with respect to the judiciary. And in fact, the new reforms list no fewer than 16 regulatory clauses, most of which are widely expected to pass. So what are the changes? Well, among them is the revoking of the High Court's ability to disqualify laws, the granting of immunity from prosecution to all sitting ministers, the allowance of multiple Knesset members to fill ministerial positions, and the enabling of a rotational Knesset member list. But here with us now to discuss this further via Skype is investigative journalist with Israel Hayom, Akiva Bigman. Welcome.
1: Hello, thank you.
0: So let's jump right in. What are the biggest changes being proposed?
1: Well, the biggest changes being proposed are changes that are supposed to uh, bring back the the restraint on the judicial, uh, uh, we'll call it uh, you know the, the judicial activism that uh, got control of Israel democracy in the last twenty years. Uh, basically, Israel is facing some kind of constitutional crisis in the last twenty or maybe even thirty years, and most of these uh, these new proposals are supposed to. Brings, bring uh, bring us back to the classic uh, democracy, liberal democracy that used to be in this country before uh, before the activists uh, took hold.
0: Now, how likely are these reforms to pass?
1: Well, some of them are likely not to pass. Some of them will probably pass, but differently than they are proposed. But I really hope that at least a few of them would pass. Some of them are actually very classic, which are very common in other democracies. They're like holding a public hearing for a judicial appointments, uh, like uh, giving the, the Knesset another chance to have a re-vote on, uh, on laws that the Supreme Court decided to cancel, which is actually common in Britain. So none of this is like, made up, out of the blue ideas. Most of it is, uh, is, is things that are precedented in the democracies for hundreds of years. And it's a, I think it's about time that Israel uh, takes some of these measures to bring back the classic liberal democracy we used to have.
0: Mm-hmm. So why is this being deemed so controversial by some critics?
1: Yeah, well, the fact is there's a there's a big uh, debate in Israel about the uh, the role of the judiciary and uh, and the whole concept of democracy between progressives who, who view the, the who view the country the state as a uh, it being that supposed to they can force a progressive vision and they're using the Supreme Court as a main uh, main tool to, to, to enforce their vision and the classic Democrats who think that the, the people should rule and the Knesset and the government should have the should have most of the power and uh, and, and that's why the, the progressives are standing on their back legs and they're fighting against this because they know, that even, they, even accepting some of these proposals, even accepting three of them, even one of them will, will very strongly uh, uh, harm their cause and harm the power that the Supreme Court has, uh, has taken to, to impose a progressive vision on Israel. So they're fighting for their, basically, for their lives as far as they're concerned, because they know that they can't uh, advance this vision through popular vote in the Knesset.
0: Now, how much of this new legislation is designed to protect the people in power?
1: Well, if you go through the the details of the legislation, uh, I I would say maybe none or only one piece of legislation that has to do with the immunity of, uh, of ministers. But that's not the issue. The issue is the whole legal and uh, constitutional structure of Israel. That's, what's, that's the stakes. So uh, they're trying to portray it as if everything has to do with Netanyahu's personal survival. And it's not the first time. If you remember, uh, Ehud Olmert appointed uh, Professor Daniel Friedman, which is a, he's a left winger in his uh, political views, but he's a conservative uh, judicial uh, professor. And, uh, and they claimed also that Ullman was doing this because he was facing legal charges and Daniel Friedman was supposed to help him with his personal issues. I mean, this is a classic talking point. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to hold the line on the progressive revolution, on the judicial revolution. And they're going to claim all sorts of claims from all different kinds of ideas. Some have some basis, some don't. It doesn't make a difference.
0: Okay, because cool. the. Re- Akiba, we're re- out of time. Re- Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. In other news, Israeli pharmaceutical company Teva is now staring down the barrel, so to speak, as at least 44 U.S. states have now filed a lawsuit against the manufacturer over allegations of price gouging. And this after Teva already faces massive debts and stock drops after sales failures. And another giant lawsuit concerning the sale of opioids. But in this latest indictment, in which Teva, Milan and Fitzer are all named as defendants, the allegations point to how at least 100 generic drugs had their prices systematically inflated. Additionally, Teva is accused of colluding with over 86 other companies regarding price-fixing in amounts as high as 1,000%. As Connecticut Attorney General William Tong reported to Bloomberg, we have hard evidence that shows the generic drug industry perpetrated a multi-billion dollar fraud on the American people. And we all wonder why our health care and specifically the prices for generic prescription drugs are so expensive in this country. This is a big reason why. But still, while Tevil certainly seems to be heavily involved, the issue is far from an isolated incident. Meanwhile, as Poland marched against Jewish restitution in Warsaw over the weekend, a passionate march for Palestinian rights was held in London on Saturday, too. And it received Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn's full blessings. Additionally, the march, which saw hundreds cheering for Palestine to be free, coincided with the Nakba, or the annual day meaning catastrophe in Arabic, lamenting Israel's independence and the alleged expulsion of Arabs who voluntarily escaped Israel during the war. And in fact, leading the march was Ahed Tamimi, the now 18-year-old girl who was jailed for hitting an IDF soldier. Tamimi, who has become a poster child for the boycott movement, is somewhat of a star in Europe, where she speaks about the need of resisting Israeli occupation. And in typical Corbyn fashion, the Labour leader then took to Facebook and praised the protest, adding that the Labour Party can't stay silent at the continuing denial of rights and justice to the Palestinian people. Then he went on to continue to condemn IAF strikes in Gaza, but of course made no mention of the 700 some rockets launched at Israeli civilians last week. But elsewhere, in another misstep, it appears Corbyn has written an effusive forward for a book that claims Jews control the global financial system too. This, in a new edition of the 1902 book, Imperialism, A Study, in which Corbyn writes that the book is brilliant and very controversial at the time. And though the book has largely been disproven and denounced as racist, the Labour Party remained adamant that Corbyn was praising the overall political theories espoused in the book itself, and doesn't actually subscribe to the author's outdated beliefs regarding the Jewish people. But again, though it's hard to swallow that explanation, when Corbin has a long history of siding with the anti-Semites of this world, For example, just to name a very small number of the many incidents involving Corbyn, in 2006, he called for the release of two convicted bombers who set off powerful explosives at a building housing Jewish charities. Then, three years later, he said Hamas and Hezbollah were his friends, statements he never retracted. And in 2010, he hosted a Holocaust Remembrance Day event where he compared the Israelis to Nazis. So is this latest problematic act another misunderstanding or just more of the same? You be the judge. Now, in yet another diplomatic victory for Israel, Germany has just stated that it will support the Jewish state at the UN. And Germany also added that it's deeply troubled by the anti-Israel bias evident in the international body and wants to take a stand against the discrimination Israel routinely faces. Additionally, Israel's ambassador to Germany, Jeremy Sekharov, said that he hopes such a declaration is the beginning of a change in voting patterns for the country. In general, too, Germany, like most of Europe, tends to vote against Israel when resolutions against it are put forth. But in a statement released by Germany's foreign office, marking 70 years since Israel joined the UN, it said that it now stands at Israel's side and has a historic responsibility not only to Israel, but to the Jewish people. Then, Germany continued that its concern that Israel continues to be criticized inappropriately, is treated in a biased manner and marginalized in the bodies of the UN. Unfortunately, however, that support isn't always evident on Germany's streets, as just last week an Israeli was brutally attacked in a pro-Palestinian event in Berlin. The man in question was Daniel Gurfinkel, a 27-year-old Israeli clarinetist studying at the Hans Eisler Academy in Berlin. And a video broadcast by the Russian news agency showed him being forcefully shoved and hit by pro-Palestinian activists who were opposed to Israel hosting the Eurovision this year. Additionally, it took police who were stationed right there at least five minutes to intervene, according to reports. Breaking with a decades-long held tradition, the Iranian National Olympic Committee, or NOC has just published a letter Saturday detailing the end of its boycott against competing with Israeli athletes. Thus, as illustrated in the letter posted by the International Judo Federation, Iran will fully respect the Olympic Charter and its non-discrimination principle. Iran's compliance, while admirable, however, comes after the International Judo Federation first reached out to the Iranian sports ministries. And in fact, the IJF website cites a recent history of a disturbing phenomenon involving sudden injury or failure of weigh-in of Iranian athletes, linked by many to the possible obligation of the given athletes to compete against certain countries. And the IJF has even threatened Iran with banishment from future competition. Further, even the signatories of the Iranian statement have benefited from the anti-Israel boycott. President of the Iranian Judo Federation, Arash Mirasmaeli, for example, was paid $125,000 in 2004 after intentionally getting disqualified from competition against Israeli judoka Udi Wax. And Mirasmaeli told the BBC at the time that it was in sympathy with the oppressed Palestinians. That being said, though, many athletes and athletic directors, even in the Arab world, have criticized this practice already, especially as it's not unique to judo. And in response to calls against normalization from pro-Palestinian detractors, such critics simply respond with how it's better to beat the Israelis on the world stage than lose to them on purpose because of a boycott. Moving on, Eurovision is almost here. And to celebrate the week-long extravaganza, representatives from 41 countries sauntered along the orange carpet Sunday night. Why orange? Well, like New York, Tel Aviv too is a city that never sleeps and fancies itself the Big Orange. But at any rate, the competition will kick off Tuesday night and everyone here is very excited.
1: The city of Tel Aviv has never been more ready, ever. We've been in existence for exactly 110 years. We were born 110 years ago as a city, here, at this very spot, and we have been preparing for this Eurovision for the past 110 years. Seriously, this is the single biggest event in the city's history.
2: The Eurovision Song Contest is
0: about peace and more, so we're here for that. Yeah, Israel's done a fantastic job so far with the hosting, so it's going to be a really special show. However, as with most things, the historic singing contest is not without its controversies. Khan, the Israeli public broadcasting channel, released a short musical number to explain Israel to tourists. But the video was full of Israel's trademark self-deprecating sense of humor, which many felt went over the head of English speakers. And many called the video cringeworthy for its jokes about greedy Jews and the fact that Israel is a land of war and occupation. Meanwhile, it seems that the number of tourists descending on the White City for Eurovision are much lower than expected. Only 5,000 to 7,000 tourists are coming for the event, way down from the 14 to 18,000 that were initially projected. Why? Well, while the BDS movement would love to take credit for this, the real reason is that coming to Israel isn't a bargain, especially during peak season, and politics has little to nothing to do with it. Flights are expensive and hotels jacked up their prices for Eurovision specifically only to drastically lower them at the last minute when they saw how demand suddenly fell in response. But regardless, that just means savings for the savvy shopper. And for those who already arrived, the party has not disappointed.
1: Well, the Eurovision is a great event for Tel Aviv and the hotels are in high uh, demand. We are not fully booked, but there is a very big demand. and. There will be a big celebration in Tel Aviv, all over our hotels.
2: I think Tel Aviv is ready
0: for Eurovision. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think the people of Tel Aviv are really excited to have the contest here. And I think, yeah, they're ready to welcome the world.
1: So far, only the grand final is sold out. Uh, The rest are half sold out. So we have some tickets to sell and uh, please come in and join us. It will be great. But if you are not here, Khan will uh, broadcast uh, the uh, the amazing Eurovision of 2019 to your
0: homes. So don't worry if you don't have tickets. And now, joining us with more on the Eurovision hype, please welcome ILTV's own Nori Nizaraga.
2: Hi Lidar, how are you? Hi,
0: great, how are you?
2: Fine, I'm getting so excited about the Eurovision. It's like, it's crazy.
0: So what do you think of Eurovision this year?
2: I think, like the the woman's uh, talking before, even though all the tickets were not sold, Sold out. I think somehow they're going to manage to do it. I think the Australian are going to be packed and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be a big celebration.
0: And what about Israel's contestant, Kobi Marimi?
2: Okay, we can, we can dip into this. Okay. Um, basically he put out a song. It's called Home. Do you know about it? it?
0: Was a bit controversial from what I understand when it came out.
2: Why? Why do you think that We heard
0: is? mixed reviews. I think it came out to mixed reviews.
2: I think whatever people wanted to say, it was, it was like a bit boring. <laughs> it was also catalogued as like a song where people would go to the bathroom while he will be performing. Like he would, we can see a little moves. Well, we I, was, so. I was
0: being polite when I said <laughs> mixed <laughs> reviews. but
2: So uh, basically what he did this week, they put out a new version, a stage version for the song. Mm. So, you know, more crowd-friendly, more performance-friendly. So now we're going to hear a clip of the original song. So if we can can play that clip right now, please.
0: Let's play the clip. Let's
2: play the clip. I feel the sun upon my skin And I am someone I am someone All right. I mean, you know, the song starts like...
0: Kind of reminds me of, like, an opera ballad. Yeah, like I mean, that.
2: it sounds, for me, it's boring for the f- first three seconds of the beginning of the song. So they put out this new version that we can, like, hear it right now. I feel the sun upon my skin And I am someone, I am someone I mean, can you see the difference, spot the difference? Maybe it's pretty slight, some musical arrangements. Yeah, I, I mean,
0: know. the song is pretty much the same.
2: Yeah, it's pretty much the same. But hopefully we'll see a good performance of the song on the, on the grand finale, which is this Saturday. So it's going to perform in there. So while we wait for that, we, will have, we have a clip of Kobe Barimi and his band singing Hallelujah, the classic Israeli song. We wish Kobe Barimi best of luck and take it away.
1: Hallelujah! Mm-hmm. In my
0: other news, the Bereshit isn't the only evidence of Israel making it to the stars either now. As American astronaut Jessica Mayer announced, she would be taking an Israeli flag on her first mission to space this September. And in a personal statement sent to the young astronaut on Sunday, Israeli President Rivlin offered his thanks and praises, saying we in Israel are proud of her. And indeed, there's much reason to be proud of Mail, who will be the first Swedish woman, the fourth Jewish woman, and the 15th Jew overall to go on a mission to space. And she'll be launching from Kazakhstan on September 25th with her Russian counterpart, Oleg Skripochka, and the UAE's first astronaut ever, Khaza Ali Al-Mansouri. And now for Today in History. May 13, 2019 is the 7th annual International Hummus Day. And yes, you heard that right. It is actually a real day where people from around the world celebrate their love of hummus. The day was initiated in 2012 by Ben Lang at the Hackathon in Tel Aviv. And he, along with Miriam Young, started what has now become a worldwide phenomenon with special events including hummus festivals, special restaurant menus, and more, all celebrating the Middle Eastern dip. In the United States, Europe, the Middle East, Australia, and Africa. So today, the founders of Hummus Day are encouraging people to eat hummus for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And of course, to snap photos of this tasty dish and share on social media with the hashtag #HummusDay. Day. So, if you haven't already had your daily dose of hummus, what are you waiting for? Let's go ahead and take a look at the weather forecast. Tonight should be clear to partly cloudy and warm with a low of 63 or 17 degrees Celsius. Then tomorrow you can expect sunny skies and a slight rise in temperatures for a high of about 86 or 30 degrees Celsius.